Well, that's how Aubrey said it. It's uh, close enough. It's a uh, it's a difficult one because uh, some of the sounds are not there in the English language. So uh, some sometimes or most people don't even hear the subtleties. So it's okay. Okay. It's uh, Aditi Bhargava. Aditi, uh, Doctor Aditi Bhargava. I saw you on Aubrey Marcus about a week and a half ago, and. I saw it, watched it, loved it, and reached out to you, and you you got back to me, said you'd love to, and we chatted on the phone. And um, so instead of kind of jumping into like what I've done with Dr. Malone the two times I've had him on, you said, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There are a lot of people that very simply don't understand what the mRNA vaccine technology is. And when you first said that, I started thinking of it. And as everyone knows on this podcast, I was a biology major in college. I got into medical school. But- I kind of stopped and thought about it. And I was like, yeah, well, I know what mRNA is. And I, Dr. Malone explained it to me. But I realized, like, you know, I I don't really know what it is either. And as you said before we started recording, you know, you've been in this field for 30 years. A lot of people are spend their whole lives trying to figure out certain fields. And now we have the whole public all of a sudden trying to master this in real time. It's like two kids falling in love in high school and expecting to – understand the intricacies of relationships the same way your grandparents do. And it's like, it's not, it's a lifelong thing. So if people like yourself or Dr. Malone are, are saying, we're still learning, figuring this thing out, what do people like me or any of the people I was just standing with in the parking lot, watching the fire trucks come through, what do we know about mRNA vaccines? But before we go into all that, you are, you work at the University of California, San Francisco. And this is your specialty, and I don't want to put any words in your mouth. So, kind of tell everyone how you got into this field and a little about yourself. Um, thank you, um, Tommy, for inviting me, and um, um, I really appreciate the opportunity to go on these uh, podcasts and talk about science because that's my passion, and I really think it's. Um, uh, science has multiple sides. It's not two sides, multiple sides. And um, it's it's difficult, of course, for um, most people. And um, as science has gotten more and more evolved and advanced, uh, you can say that there are uh, multiple fields or area or speciality and molecular biology being one of them. But... Um, um, and of course, there are other fields, virology, epidemiology, uh, neuroscience, endocrinology. So in some ways, you can think of them as different languages, but let's say with uh, some similar basic foundations which are shared. So for example, if someone speaks um, and understands Spanish, they can um, probably understand or uh, without trying very hard, uh, Italian or some other closely related language. Um, so in, in that way, if you have a good solid foundation, then perhaps you can understand multiple scientific la- languages or fields. And so uh, my undergraduate was actually with uh, zoology um, as major and botany as minor. So you can see that I have a, a very basic 
fundamental biology background. And of course, in that time, zoology was not just, um, you know, classification of animals, but it was included embryology and developmental biology and physiology. So you get a very um, uh, rounded sort of an education. And it's not... Um, uh, it's taught over, of course, several years. So, And then um, my master's was in uh, molecular biology and then uh, PhD in similar area. And then I've been um, sort of worked in uh, virology, working on human papillomaviruses. Early on uh, in 1990, uh, while I was starting out, um, in my scientific career, research career, I was also involved in uh, developing the first PCR-based diagnostic kit for detection of mycobacterium uh, tuberculosis in um, in spit samples uh, from human patients uh, back in um, India. And I think that kit uh, is still being used. So I have... Um, um, and that was actually done, uh, the very first initial experiment was done with a homemade PCR machine. Um, so, um, you know, it's a process and you go through it. And of course, uh, since then, my research, I would describe it as more, you know, it, it uses several aspects of uh, different sciences that I talked about. So molecular biology, cell biology, biochemistry, neuroscience, endocrinology, immunology, um, and many more. So, uh, and, and that is because um, if you really want to understand function, um, there is no organ in your body that works in isolation. Mm -hmm. It has to coordinate. So you can look at it in isolation. And when you do that, then you get a different view. But in, if you really want to understand, you still have to look at it how does it work when it's uh, working in coordination with with all your organs, right? Yeah. So if you just look at the tire rotating, that's not going to tell you how it'll rotate if you're driving the car at you know 20 miles versus 100 miles, and so you have to look at the whole picture. Yeah. So um, with that. Uh, in, of course, you know, when people also, some of them Google search and then find me being part of the um, department of um, OBGYN, they wonder, what am I doing talking about uh, mRNA? <laughs> so, um, of course, UCSF is a medical school. Uh, we don't have any undergraduate program here, unlike the other UCs. So uh, a lot of departments are clinical departments. So uh, even and most people do basic and translational research, PhD scientists. So you are part of a clinical department. So it's it's sort of a home, but does not mean that you are. Um, so I don't deliver babies, just as a disclaimer. Sure, I I applied to like thirty five medical schools in twenty thirteen, and I only got I got into one. I got interviews at three. And I got secondary applications from 33. There were two schools that I didn't get separate uh, secondary applications to. That was Harvard and UCSF. So I, oh. <laughs> I do know what UCSF is because I was like, not even a secondary application? You're not even going to take my money? But yeah, it's what you're saying about 
the independence of things, right? It's, um, I mean, you can go in and you can, I've had on an author before, um, uh, Norman Oler, who wrote a book called Blitzed, and it's all about the use of drugs in the Third Reich. And so you can go in with a hyper-focus, and you can look at the drugs that the Nazis used. Or you can zoom out, and you can say, how did the Holocaust happen? Or you can zoom out, and you can say, how did Hitler come to power? How did Hitler fight uh, the United States And when we declared, I mean, 80 years ago yesterday, declared war on Japan? Or you can zoom out and say, well, what led to Pearl Harbor and oil embargoes? And you can zoom out and say, well, that was really just a continuation of World War One." And you can zoom out and say it's because, you know, Gavrilo Princip, and you zoom out and it you can look at all these things in these little tiny, you know, this is what it is. But once you move out more and more, it's a it's a weird sort of fractal where the image it's it's the same, but it keeps changing. So yeah, why are you involved in this? And it's because these are all uh, analogous systems. These are all analogous studies, right? It's you, 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 you learn chemistry and you learn biology, and you know, in one you're looking at the size of the atom, and the other you're looking at phospholipid bilayers. But they all build on one another, and you can't. I mean, you can, but you can't just cut one thing out and then say this is what this is or this is what this is not. They all exist in larger systems, and. That, now, that, now, that argument could be used for literally everything in the world, and no one has time for that. I can't learn about the history of water bottles. I just, I just get a water bottle. It's just what it is. But for something where we are in a global pandemic that is affecting every human on this planet and every human getting one of the vaccines or the newer ones that are like Novax or whatever the other ones, all of the vaccines, this is something where it's like – Oh, we kind of got to understand. It's not a high school history class where you go, okay, Hitler this, Japan that, Pearl Harbor, FDR. This is something where it's like, we kind of all do have to learn this. Maybe you don't need to know where your shoes are made. It's interesting if that's what you want to learn about, but you don't really need to. But with something like this, mRNA, I mean, if if there couldn't be a bigger buzzword right now, mRNA technology, it is something that is directly affecting literally every human being on this planet. So we do need to learn about it. And if you've been in it for 30 years, you said you started in 1990, that's when I was born. You know, how am I going to figure this out two years into a pandemic if, if you're still working with it, if Dr. Malone is still working with it? So with that, for everybody listening, um, you are going to kind of walk me through it and by extension, my audience of just what this is, and we are going to try our hardest not to put a political bent on it or a, or a, a, any other sort of bend or lens or whatever, just laying it out there as a science. When, you, when you're in physics and you, know, you do poorly in it like I did, you just learn what the equations are. You just learn, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. There's no... All right, well, what did the people in Hawaii think about? It's just it's just what it is. You learn about the moon and the moon's going around us and it's just what it is. So with that, Dr. Bargava, please walk me and my audience through what exactly is mRNA vaccine technology or just mRNA technology or even what mRNA is. And I will hand it over to you. Thank you. So before I walk you through what mRNA is, perhaps I thought we'll just... Um, also talk about this whole um, pandemic or the process uh, in some ways and how we've gotten where we are. 
And um, so let me see if I can share my screen. Dr. Bargava and I doing some Apollo 13 moves, <laughs> trying to figure out. It's very true. She's a physician. I am not. I'm a biology major. But between the two of us, we have the skills of half an IT major. But the PowerPoint is up. I can see you. I can see me. We are recording. And no one else will see everything in between. So to continue on with what we are saying before that will be edited out is this is your presentation on exactly what mRNA is. And as the title of the slide says, making sense of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, noise versus signal. With that, Dr. Bargava, please take it away. Thank you. And again, just to clarify, I'm not a physician. I'm a basic and translational nah, scientist. Nonsense, nonsense. Okay. And so... Um, oh, again, I said physician. I'm... Sorry. Yeah. No, Dr. Bargava. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. I, I realized am... I said that. I am here um, as a scientist and not really on behalf of UCSF or any other organizations. I just want to yep, yep, very clear. put that as a yep. disclaimer. Yeah, and I don't represent Dr. Bargava. Anything I say in this episode or any other episodes does not reflect on UCSF or Dr. Bargava, just me, Tommy Kerrigan. Okay, so... Um, So I think one thing is very clear to me that the COVID-19 pandemic and SARS-CoV research is a little bit or a lot like this parable that I have here or a picture of an Indian parable, which is about six blind men and an elephant. And the way the story goes, and of course, uh, it's... Um, modified a little bit just to uh, suit our own purpose here, is that there were these really wise um, or very uh, intelligent six men, but they were blind. And each one had their speciality, and they were very, in a way, arrogant about it. So the villagers were really fed up with these um, six men, and they wanted someone to teach them a lesson. So they went to this wise um old man and asked him what they could do about him. And he said, leave it to me. So he took, he went to these six uh, men and said, I'm going to do this. Um, we're going to have a test and we'll figure out which one of you is the wisest. And you have to we'll take you to an animal and you have to feel that animal, but we'll only give you one part to feel. And you're going to tell from that part what kind of an animal or what kind of an object is that. And whoever tells us that will be the most intelligent or the wisest. And so as you can see, each one of them were assigned one part of the elephant, the trunk, the tusk, the ear, the foot, the body, and the tail. And so um, they could go up and down, but they couldn't you know, go beyond what they were assigned. So um, guesses what they come up with? Of course, the... Um, the person who was assigned the, the trunk came up with that this is a snake. The tusk was a spear. The ear was um, a fan. The leg was a stump of a tree. The body was a wall. And the tail was a rope. So this is how I feel about SARS and COVID. Okay. That we all have our uh, little 
window into whatever what we are looking at and we've made our conclusions and it's not just the general public the scientists are doing the same the policymakers are doing the same everybody is in the same boat so instead of looking at the overall picture and of course uh, none of them got it right and so they were all humbled and realized that they cannot continue the way they do and so they um and of course the wise man was able to solve that issue for the villagers so uh with that you know <laughs> i would say that covid has created a lot of chaos there's a lot of obfuscation on part of everybody unfortunately it's there's been a lot of vitriol as well uh on all sides uh misinformation not just on one side or the other uh there's a lot of um and as you can see from that elephant parable how that misinformation can uh can originate and then of course a lot of information is also mutated mm-hmm. and the virus itself is mutating at a really fast rate <laughs> so that's in technology they have this um acronym fud and i think um we see that here too and fear of course being the biggest uh issue which has been so divisive and with fear you can control anybody almost people mm-hmm. and of course there is a lot of uncertainty about um what's happening with uh new variants new mutants and then um how that's dictating policy or everyday disruptions in our lives so there is a lot of uncertainty and of course doubt so this is again not new if you look at the history of pandemics there have been many um since they first started recording that history in early bcs but as you can see that um the pandemics didn't happen so frequently right so um if the first recorded here is saying 168 mm-hmm. AD and then after that um you know 500 and 700 so you have hundreds of years between these pandemics and then uh, obviously it looks also like they were plague or mostly plague then smallpox and plague 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 uh, perhaps once cholera and then plague again and then we come to like 1800s before we have yellow fever so it's it was really dominated by one or two uh infectious diseases and after yellow fever the other recorded um um pandemics spanish flu is the first one where influenza uh, virus sort of spread so much and in fact at that time when spanish flu uh, pandemic was going on there was a vaccine against the bacterial flu and people thought perhaps vaccinating people would have prevented uh, so many deaths at the time of spanish flu and only later on to realize that the vaccine wouldn't have they never gave that vaccine but of course they realized that it was not caused by bacteria but by this new um virus so sometimes uh, you know if just in the hindsight that vaccine was given 
the conclusion that would have been reached is that vaccines are ineffective. And of course, that's not true, as we have seen that certain vaccines, such as smallpox and chickenpox, are uh, fairly effective, given that the burden of disease in that is is so bad that, um, and those vaccines have done a wonderful job. So then after that, of course, you have the Russian flu and then um, AIDS virus epidemic. Then you have, again, now in more recent years, mostly different kinds of flu uh, coming from either chicken viruses or non-human viruses. So that's um, been a little bit puzzling and worrisome, right? So why are we having so many of these zoonotic jumps or viruses that are not uh, originally of human origin causing pandemics. So as you can see, uh, there was a SARS uh, on the first SARS pandemic in early 2000s. And then um, this original SARS called Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, SARS for short, was very closely related to the um, other pandemic that happened a decade later in 2012, MERS, which is a Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome. And there it was thought that this virus originated from camels, the original SARS from bat camels. And now we have the third uh, SARS, which is SARS-CoV-2, or or the third SARS pandemic, uh, which again goes back to bat. So, um, and of course, we've had um, other pandemics that the death toll has been much uh, bigger or larger. And I'm not actually very clear about how these death tolls are estimated, especially so early on and um, on basis of what, but, you know, that's uh, not my job. I, I, I don't claim to have made this slide, so... Yeah. And I think the source is there, so yeah. disclaimer. Okay, so the human coronaviruses were actually identified um, by um, a scientist called Dr. June Almedia. And um, this was identified from a medical student who was having symptoms very similar to uh, flu or influenza, but... Um, the physicians knew that it wasn't a flu virus. So they didn't. They went to uh, her who had expertise in electron microscopy. She was not a physician. And um, she was a researcher having identified other viruses as well. And when she uh, took that swab and then uh, made those images, here is what she found. So these viral particles had corona-like structures, and that's why these are called coronaviruses. And um, so she had similarly uh, pre- or previously seen similar vi- virus particles while studying um, mouse hepatitis and bronchitis in chicken. So you can see that there are other coronaviruses. And of course, when she tried to publish that, uh, just as an aside, she was told that the quality of images were really poor and the paper was rejected. Not the not the human coronavirus data, but this um, mouse hepatitis and bronchitis in chicken. So you can you can see that you know science is sort of weird. Or publications are in a way <laughs> they are what they are. That's our 
but um, and later on in the 1980s, she also helped take uh, electron microscopy pictures of the human immunodeficiency virus. Are those pictures of the the cells? Are those the pictures that she was told were weren't good enough? Uh, no, this is uh, they were very similar to it, but yes, they were told that they were not good enough. That's pretty fantastic for 1964 pictures of cells. Am, am I just not like up to date on the history of well, electron microscopy? Yes, I mean these are not they are not these are electron mic, uh, microscope pictures, and so yes, I mean this here is an yeah. Uh, what the microscope looked like, uh, but or maybe not. This is not. I'm not sure if this is the one sure. that she took it. But but indeed, you know, they are pretty um, clear pictures, and you can yeah. see Corona quite clearly. And and, and uh, having uh, actually a few of my publications have EM pictures, and having worked with electron microscope, it's not an easy task. Yeah. And so even to be able to get that and um, to have EM pictures is just uh, amazing. Yeah, that was just my gripe with it. Sorry, keep going. Okay, so in terms of just, you know, the very first noise versus signal in trying to figure out, of course, we've had all um, confusion about the origins of SARS. And given now where we are, in some ways, perhaps it's, not important, but in some ways it's very important because, you know, it, the the genie is out of the bottle, so it's not going back. Mm-hmm. And so we can debate about the origins until um, the um, cows come home or one side is blue in, in the face, but it's not going to uh, make the virus go back wherever it came from. So let's just remember that. So... But the, the lessons that we need to learn from it is if it was indeed a lab leak or a product of uh, gain-of-function uh, mutation studies, then we have to have policies in place that future um, experiments are not conducted in a manner that we will uh, land in such a situation again. And the other, of course, is uh, it's called, as I said, severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus. And so, uh, as you saw with the isolation of the first human coronaviruses in 64, that those coronaviruses have been around and we haven't really had such severe symptoms or severe disease from the human coronaviruses. And so with the first SARS in early 2000, and even with this SARS-CoV-2, only a subset of people get really severe acute respiratory syndrome. So, um, is it even is you know? And there are other um, infectious diseases or other uh, pathogens that also cause um, severe acute respiratory distress, but they're not called SARS either. So, um, perhaps in my mind, it's a little bit of a misnomer. And uh, interestingly, when this uh, was first found, um, you know, pretty soon after that, there was a group of scientists who were quick enough to um, to publish that this certainly came from an animal. It was not a lab leak. And, you know, you have some very prominent people arguing for that. And, 
I'm not sure how they reached that conclusion. Again, it's not a foregone conclusion that it was indeed a zoonotic jump. And the reason is, I'll, as I'll walk you through some of the other publications, that this sounds sort of um, not quite true. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as we talked about, the first SARS started in November, or first described then, and um, even though we have the symptoms and everything, the virus that was responsible for that was not identified and sequenced and isolated to October of 2013. So you can see there was almost a decade uh, it took for people or for scientists to identify uh, what was the cause of that. And of course, at that time too, the Chinese web market was blamed. And um, uh, and this, this was the virus. So we remain, you know, if the Chinese wet market again in Wuhan was blamed or somewhere else was blamed, these bats really don't live there. So again, that remains a question as to how the bats that live so far away from the point where the outbreak was identified, how did that zoonotic jump happen in that area? So, um, but as you'll see that in, um, and this was the paper in 2003 reporting that after the virus was identified that they can uh, reverse uh, engineer uh, full length cDNA. So C is uh, complementary DNA. So the SARS virus is an RNA virus. So, and this was done uh, here in the U.S. in 2003. So they assembled this uh, and they uh, sort of reverse synthesized from um, from the C, from the RNA uh, full length SARS-CoV. Okay. And then um, it was again in 2013 published from um, a group of scientists again in the US that they have isolated and um, again characterized the SARS coronavirus and um, possibly proposed how this virus uh, entered uh, human cells. And uh, I've highlighted an individual for reasons that uh, he, he was um, a proponent of, um, um, or you'll see why I highlighted him. So, of course, this is, I've just uh, blown the, the conclusions from, or from uh, this paper that they um, isolated this virus, which was supposedly the cause of the pandemic in 2002 and three. And so here they are going to show then that this can infect human cells using ACE2 receptor. And that's where the notion comes that ACE2 receptors are involved. Okay. Okay. So um, the conclusions from these authors in this particular publication in a journal called Nature, which is one of the highly sought after journals, was that you don't need an intermediate host. So if you don't need an intermediate host, 
where did the animal uh, hypothesis come from, right? So they're making this conclusion in 2013 that you don't need an intermediate host. And you go back to... Okay. So, so they're arguing... So on one hand, they're saying it came from an animal, not a lab leak. And then on the other hand, they're saying it doesn't need to come from an animal. It can just arise naturally. And it's, well, which is it? Right. So they're saying, here they're saying it does not need an intermediate host. Right. And therefore, we need to study it as a in a pathogen discovery program. Okay. And okay. So, okay. So the same group of scientists now is saying that it's a, it's a comes from an animal, but in 2013, they emphasize. So you can see there's a, how misinformation or how, how it can create confusion. Yeah. Now, of course, um, so he, here are some figures from that paper, just pre, uh, from the nature paper, where they're looking at what are the different uh, hosts that this virus can infect. So they take cells, Here's um, cells which are human alveolar, which are lung cells, and then bat kidney, monkey kidney, and pig kidney cells. So I'll just walk you through very, um, you know, it, on this panel here, which says DAPI, is basically a stain that um, stains the chromosomes in the nucleus. So it's identifying that these are the nuclei of the cells. So it's also showing you that there are similar number of cells that they're looking at. And in that, when they use a certain uh, way to identify um, ACE2 using an antibody staining method, which in this case they're detecting using a red color, and you can see that it stains some cells, not all, which is what in Merge is showing here. You can see these cells where you see the blue, they don't have ACE2 receptors, but some of the, the other cells have it. So the human uh, lung cells have a lot more ACE2 than, say, bad kidney or the monkey kidney or the pig kidney. Okay. And then what they do is they take a human cell uh, line called HeLa cell, and these are the cell lines that were derived from Henrietta Lacks. Um, and then the, these HeLa cells on the bottom panel, they they don't have any ACE2 receptor, and you can see, so in the green, they're showing present presence of ACE2 receptor, and in the red, they're showing the virus particle. So they're detecting that using a red color, let's say in this green color. Mm -hmm. So as you can see, that cells that don't have ACE2, here they're showing that at least in HeLa cells, um, there is no detectable virus, so there's no red. But if they give them these different uh, human or um, I assume bees for bat um, ACE2 receptors, you can see that the virus is taken up by these cells and then you can see them. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, there have been more recent papers that have used another cell line called uh, hex cells, which is a human kidney cell line. And in that, uh, even in the absence of ACE2 receptors, they can see uptake of the viral particles. So just imagine if there was another panel here, which would say heck, and then uh, there would be no green, but there would be still red, and um, it would look more like this. 
suggesting that there are other receptors besides ACE2 that can uh, allow for this virus to be taken up. Okay. So that's where this whole thing about ACE2 that you hear. Okay. Okay, so then um, um, here is an experiment showing that this um, SARS virus uh, can replicate in, um, or it's a, it's a chimeric virus, so not the original virus, so they have to make some mutations in this virus, which by default then become gain-of-function because the original virus is not pathogenic in mice. So if it's causing uh, it to become sick, that means it has this gain of function and that's why it's called chimeric. Yeah. Okay. And then um, when they tried to, in, so they made a model where they made this chimeric virus, which made the mouse mice sick and they get uh, lung inflammation and lung pathogenesis. But in that model, when they tried to use vaccines such as uh, monoclonal antibody-based vaccines, they failed to neutralize and protect the mice from infection. And those vaccines were indeed based on spike protein. Okay. So this is in 2015 when we don't have a very political, uh, politically charged scientific um, uh, research going on. I mean. So, um, on the basis of that, they conclude that um, even though this recombinant or gain-of-function kind of virus can replicate and cause disease, they again suggest that you know there's a potential risk of SARS-CoV-2 re-emergence from circulating bad population. So, I'm not sure how they, they jump, but they jump from... Um, just based on those mutations, the the speculation is that those mutations can happen, and you can get um, um, reemergence of this virus. It's kind of and of course there are other scientists who also say that, uh, in terms of just lab leak, that humans are valuable, and lab accidents happen, and they happen far more often than we care to admit. It's kind of funny. So, Sorry, at the beginning you said. Sorry to interrupt. You said, uh, you said the virus mutates, and we're also seeing misinformation mutate. We're also seeing like a, a weird controlled study of of twenty fifteen in a relatively unpolitically charged time versus a politically charged time. You can almost see like a control group and a non controlled group. How do politics affect the the distribution and research of a vaccine? Five years ago, meh. Two years ago, insanity. Correct, and and that's why I wanted to walk uh, us all through this because, as you can see, that when it was not such a, a charged environment, uh, there was there was a process, and the scientists agreed that this was not really working, or that there were dangers, and there were cautioning, but and there was no panic, right? So. <laughs> Keeping in mind yeah. that that's important, that there's no fear and panic. So um, there is all this um, back and forth about whether or not, but but let's just um, uh, put that aside and just look at whether or not these kind of accidents can happen. And 
anybody, you know, people, there are um, just like um, physicians who are working or infectious disease physicians, they do not know what um, dangers they can face in terms of, you know, what kind of new infectious pathogens can be there which are not identified yet. So they put themselves at risk, just like, you know, any, there are uh, firefighters put themselves at risk, uh, law enforcement officers put themselves at risk. And Madame Curie put herself at risk while researching radioactivity when the dangers of radioactivity weren't known. Mm -hmm. So just like that, we work in the lab. We use uh, many pathogens uh, and you have you have to study if they are causing disease, you have to study them. So if they can cause disease in human population, we working with them in the lab, they can potentially cause disease in us. And so you have um, protocols in place, you have safety, um, um, very stringent requirements to work with them, training, um, PPEs, and, um, and uh, of course, um, um, safety, biosafety equipment, and things like that. And that's where you hear about the BSL biosafety levels and um, and how do you dispose of these things and not. So um, bacteria, fungi, parasites, viruses all fall in that category. And, and there have been other um, lab-known cases of infections from a number of these pathogens. So if something like that were to happen with um, um, SARS, it's not an unusual um, thing, just okay. to say. Okay. And indeed, when you look at um, in 2004, here is a case report in New England Journal of Medicine about a student who um, was working with SARS, the first SARS, and um, got this infection. And um, when this graduate student or PhD student uh, got sick and went to the hospital first, of course, he denied that it was from the lab. And um, you know, PCR testing confirmed that it was uh, uh, he had a West Nile virus as well as a SARS-CoV-2 RNA infection. And then when they went back to um, the while uh, from the lab in which he was working, this was exactly identical to that um, strain of virus. So um, what that that suggests is that you know these kind of accidents do happen. Okay. So uh, there's obviously a lot of in my mind also noise for the COVID-19 publications and the rapidity with which they're being published. Uh, you know, you look at whether or not um, how robust and reproducible they are. And so just to give you uh, that in PubMed, which is a search engine that we use, if you just type in SARS, you can see that between 1911 and 2003, there were a total of 1,800 publications, or rather uh, between 1911 and 20, um, I think 2020 maybe. Just between, uh, in, uh, 29, in 2020, there were, as of October of 2020, there were nearly 39,000 publications. And in last year, 45,500 publications. 
no one can go through them. No one, you know, no one person, no. Uh, and of course, they're not all on. Um, there are obviously a lot of case reports and there are a lot of other things that are uh, that form that. But just the sheer number of publications. And, and I think if you, instead of that, if you put in some other keyword here, you'll find that those numbers have diminished a lot. You can, uh, so of course, there's the uh, fashion um, in terms of research that goes on. So um, this particular, I showed you a slide where um, the first SARS outbreak happened in 2002, and the virus was identified in 2013. Here we have a report of um, the pandemic uh, starting or declared in March, but then this publication uh, that was uh, accepted in January 20th or received on January 20th, accepted on January 29th. So just nine days. And within that time, they were able to do the peer review process and go through all of that, which um, is possible, but of course, you know, given the urgency of the situation at that time, perhaps, um, you know, you put in all your resources and it was important to put out what could be the potential cause. And so they identified this, um, that they said that they sequenced um, this virus from a patient and that this was 96% identical to the bat virus and um, about... Um, 80% identical to the original SARS. Okay. So that's, okay. yes, so that's nine days to get, which I mean, if, if you really wanted it, you know, if it was like a military operation, sure, you could throw all your resources, you know, like the Manhattan Project. But if there's 40,000, I mean, are they all getting this sort of greenlit uh, accepted pass on it? Where is all of the peer review? Where some of these things, it's like what Warren Buffett said. Uh, you can't get a baby in one month by getting nine women pregnant now. It takes nine months. Some things just take time. And it seems that, and this isn't, again, this isn't a, a, a politicized thing. It's just some things like peer-reviewed research, especially molecular biology and looking at the the evolutionary genetics of a strain of something you can't, you, you just can't do it. You can't grow a whole tree like that. Some things just take time. Well, so let me, yes. So to clarify, I don't think all 45,000 that you saw okay. are so rapidly being accepted, Okay. but I'm just giving you the sheer number, like how everything is now focused on just COVID and SARS in terms of research or people's um, resources and other research or other diseases or other indications are being in a way sidelined, if you like, or um, just the, just in terms of trying to figure out what's going on, how much information is out there. So in this particular paper that's up here right now, what they're looking at is just identifying a patient and then um, um, identifying from uh, their swabs and from their blood samples, uh, a potential virus, which they they did sequence. 
So it's the virus is there. They were able, able to identify the sequence and then compare it to the database that already existed for other viruses. So uh, could they, um, and then uh, the, the interesting thing is that, that, that they were able to, um, to take this virus from isolated from the uh, bronchoabular fluid of the, this one of the critically ill patients and then um, show that just like the other experiment that I was showing you, take human cell lines and show that that virus was able to enter through the ACE2 receptors. So that's how they conclude that this SARS-CoV or it's very related and of course sequence-based. So uh, it, it, it's understandable that the journal put its resources in finding reviewers who were able to review it. But what I'm saying is, of course, there's no, the nine days is not enough to, if you have some critiques or questions for anybody to go back and take care of those. And there, there is, uh, with the exception of this, I've hardly known any uh, publications or any uh, manuscript that you submit that will not come back with critiques or some questions that you have to address or some experiments that you have to redo. But this was um, obviously a, at that time a very uh, urgent scenario. So you you take it with a pinch of salt. But um, just as a comparison, uh, and, and, and at the same time, you can see another um, similar paper published and accepted within, um, within a month. Mm -hmm. And here again, they are showing, and, and so this is in an animal model now. So what they're showing is that they take the SARS-CoV virus that has been isolated from a German traveler, and then they, uh, who had returned from China, then they uh, take this bolus of uh, virus and give it to healthy monkeys and then look at what happens to the monkeys. And interestingly, only two of the four monkeys um, show virus in their nasal um, uh, cavity and uh, in throat. And then and the, the, the wild type, and I think even the alpha strain of this virus basically went to many different uh, tissues. And, and that's how what they're showing here it was found from nasal sample, from the trachea, from uh, the lung, and then in the gut, um, as well as um, um, yeah, so in, in different uh, tissues this was going, but the the point here also is that they're looking at um, young and aged, and as you can see that in the, the young animals clear it much faster and the older uh, animals in them, in their nasal sample, it persists. Mm -hmm. But the key point here was that um, the virus shedding, they were not able to detect um, from from the samples. They had to do a swab to get the virus. So two points in my mind um, make it very clear here that this virus is obviously not causing, uh, even if you're exposed to, in this case, the animals were given a bolus of the virus. So, right, so you're not, it's not just simple exposure that you're, if I am infected and you are in front of me, 
that that's an exposure, but you're not being given a bolus, right? You're not, mm-hmm. I'm not taking my snot and then yeah, putting it all over yeah. you. Sorry for that. No, 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 no. It's, it's what it is, is it's, it's, it's like a periphery or a secondary thing. It's not, again, yeah, you're like, you know, AIDS or something. It's not like I'm taking a syringe of an AIDS patient and then putting it in me. It's, you're not getting Which is what was done for the monkeys and then too, not 100% of the monkeys develop disease. So of course, you know, uh, and the monkeys even don't get a very severe um, disease or um, respiratory distress. So they're not really a very good model. But nonetheless, the, the key point is that not all of them developed or even had the virus replicating in them despite being given or inje- being injected with the virus. And the second point is that the young animals cleared it within days uh, of giving that bolus, which is a, here in the gray line, whereas the older ones kept it if they got the infection or the virus is, was able to replicate, then it stayed with them for longer. So. Um, same thing we are seeing in humans, right? So children, young adults clear it much uh, faster, they recover much faster, and the older people are having a harder time. And again, we can't say with 100%, right? There are some older people probably with really robust immune systems that may clear it. So getting into the mRNA vaccines, right? So um, mRNA vaccines are... um, in, in some ways, as, as you've heard from others and Dr. Malone, and you'll see that the technology in some ways has been tried for decades. And this uh, particular review article lists some of the mRNA trial for vaccines that were ongoing uh, until 2018. And there were many companies, including um, now famous Moderna, and as you can see, they were doing their um, trials for Zika and influenza virus. And um, they can all be found at clinicaltrials.gov. Their uh, trial numbers are listed here. So what happened to that, right? They were using similar technology. Um, why wasn't it a success? And here it is. Uh, if you go to clinicaltrials.gov, you actually don't find much information. In some ways, it's uh, pretty useless and frustrating because you you regi- register all these trials, but um, very few trials ever post any results. So obviously, no results posted here. And phase one. So uh, they eventually published data from this trial uh, in a journal called Vaccines in May of 2019. And of course, their conclusion was that this was a success, but uh, if it was a success, it definitely didn't make it to beyond phase one, and we didn't see any vaccines. Yeah, and it's... Uh, But if you read um, in details, or in actual read and not just look at their own conclusion, which I think is a major problem because all of us, I mean... Uh, I'm not uh, any different, right? So if I have some finding, I will want to make or put my best foot forward. So she would say that, of course, our findings it are... Worked. Uh, uh, well, not always. And and then I think that's why perhaps I... Um, I, I think my uh, 
all my publications, if you see, are pretty balanced, and in some cases, I've uh, fought uh, with the with the journal uh, and the reviewers that I want to put my uh, negative findings in the paper, and they say, "What do you do with the negative finding?" And the negative findings are very important as far as I'm concerned because they tell you that this thing didn't work, or in this context, this didn't happen. And it's very important to know because otherwise somebody is also going to think that why didn't they look for it and then they'll do the same study and find that it didn't work and then you go into this you know negative data and so i think just like likes are important dislikes are important without likes and dislike you can't really put the whole picture so positive yeah. data is good but negative data is equally important and i think um, the biological sciences um, are really handicapped by not having uh, enough of that negative data reported uh, in their publications. So if you if you re read the paper, they say they say very clearly um, that they also had 124 unsolicited adverse events. And some of those uh, are listed here, but not a full um, uh, full full list. I, I, I couldn't find that. And um, and then the other uh, important finding was that they, they had in their uh, clinical trial tried two uh, routes of administration. One is intramuscular IM or intradermal. And then they said that uh, the intradermal vaccination route was uh, uh, associated with high rates of um, adverse events and they discontinued enrollment for intradermal uh, within, I think, weeks. So uh, the point being here is that even if they were able to iron out all the problems that they were having with this technology, the route of administration is important. So if uh, this vaccine is not being given in uh, the muscle, but somehow makes it to other areas, i.e. intradermal, or intravenous, or um, um, you know, then there will be consequences or side effects in those pe people. So, what is uh, this um, this mRNA, and uh, what does it stand for? So, this is taken from uh, the, uh, Pfizer's presentation to um, the UK's uh, health regulatory agency because. The, the document presented to the FDA does not contain these kind of details. So it's also interesting to me that certain details that you find uh, in either the documents submitted to Japan, uh, Japan's regulatory agency or the European Union, uh, they have much more details than the ones that are submitted to the U.S. agencies. And uh, I do not understand why. Yeah, that's no, so, that's no good. So uh, mRNA stands for uh, messenger RNA, and we have uh, three major classes of RNA in, in, our, um, in eukaryotes or in us or in mammals. And of course, there are many more kinds of RNAs, but just to focus on, so M being messenger RNA. And why is it a messenger? Let me ask you, since you're a biology student. Oh, it's not a class, but... Oh, Lord. Hey, you're going to give me flashbacks. It's been eight years. Messenger, well, messenger, well, RNA, right? Well, RNA is coded into DNA or DNA is, 
I don't remember which way, whatever the holy grail is, right? DNA to RNA or RNA to DNA. And then DNA to RNA and RNA to proteins. Well, right. It's the, it's the, it's the runner boy. I'm giving you something. And I say, Hey, go, uh, here's my grocery list. The grocery list is the messenger and you take it and you run to the store and you go get bread and soda and beer. And that's the protein, right? And not that I'm the DNA. That's my demand. And then it's, is that correct? Right, correct. So DNA to RNA to protein. And that was considered at some point the central do- the dogma, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. only yeah. DNA to RNA to protein until the retroviruses were discovered, so um, such as the HIV. Uh, and that, of course, is an RNA virus. And then they found that there were RNA-dependent RNA polymerases, which actually uh, reverse transcribed or made the the RNA into DNA. So you have the flow of information from DNA to RNA, but RNA can also make DNA. So, um, but the but the DNA, which is uh, in uh, in humans and um, most eukaryotes, DNA is the genetic code, and that is uh, made into or tra- uh, so from the language of DNA, it's made into the language of protein using amino acids. That's why the process. Uh, it's called translation. So language of DNA, the language of proteins are translated. Mm-hmm. But the mRNA, uh, when it's made from DNA, is called transcribed because it's still the same language. So it's a transcript. So the here is the mess, um, uh, mRNA for this particular vaccine um, from Pfizer. And uh, the, the structure is very important. So you have, uh, of course, here they're showing that there is what is, so this particular region where you see S protein, which is a spike protein. So this region um, is the message for the spike protein. And before that and after that uh, are some sequences that are needed for either the RNA stability or for the protein to be made and secreted. So five prime, um, I mean, if it, as you can see, it's in some way linear, we have to give a direction and that direction is, uh, in some ways, uh, for most people, is immaterial, but it's just um, for people who understand. But the five prime UTR stands for untranslated region. So I told you that parts of message will be made into protein. So that's called the translated region. And this um, sequence here, which is shown as UTR, is not going to be part of the protein. And for mRNA to stay stable, it needs these five prime, three prime UTRs. But most importantly, it also needs this thing shown here as cap. And this five prime cap is extremely important because without that, in eukaryotes, the mRNA is not translated. It provides stability and it also provides to so the viruses. Uh, and so before I go to the five prime cap, cap, there's also the three prime region. And then in the end, there is what we call a poly A tail. So that also um, makes the mRNA different from the other types of MR, uh, other types of RNA, such as ribosomal or transfer RNA. So the poly A tail, and not all mRNAs have poly A tail, and only the RNAs that have poly A tail will make protein. So if you lose the poly A tail, this mRNA will not be translated very efficiently. If you lose the cap, it will not be translated very efficiently. Okay. Okay, so, and 
if there is no cap, it can be degraded. If there's no poly A, it can be degraded. It means uh, the cell will just say, uh, chop it off, it's get rid of it. It's junk. It's kind of like when you buy like a bottle of ketchup or something, and it says do not use if the seal is broken. So it's right. got to have the goodies. You got to have the the opening, the closing, and then the okay, good to go. Good, good analogy. Except that uh, unlike the 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 cap on the bottles, which are um, vacuum tight, unfortunately these caps are not. They're like you could flick it open, like yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Okay, okay. So I get what you're saying. So it's so it's not even like a fail safe. It's just much better probability. Well, when you make it like this, yeah. just remember because this is a construct that they oh, yeah. don't. Yeah, this is but when it's being made in the cell, then the cell has its own um, safety processes in place, and it's not, you know, there are a number of events that are happening so that ensure that that cap is actually um, has a safety, whatever, or is foolproof in some ways, if you like. But uh, the point here is that the vi- the virus is not so. This cap is very uh, particular to. Um, so we have our human mRNAs, have our human caps. Mm-hmm. And so the viruses, when they come in and start making their uh, RNAs, a, lot, a number of them actually end up hijacking, including the influenza virus. So they'll take away um, caps from our RNA. So, okay. um, so if you like, it's like um, cap stealing. Yeah. If you're wearing a cap, and uh, if that gives you protection, right? So if you have that kind of cap and you can enter using that cap and you will now be in a way, if you have that cap, then you're part of that group. So if I come and I don't have that cap and I need to be hiding it, hiding from that. So if I steal your cap and wear it, then I'm now part of the group. It doesn't matter. I don't really look like you at all. Yeah. But I just have that cap and that cap will just protect me. It's yeah, you're a spy, right? You're you're going into the Soviet Union and you putting on your KGB uniform. Well, not no, it's just the cap, right? Just the so cap. All right, they just are. the cap, right? Okay. So it doesn't matter what you look like, right? We, you are a, a, a man. I'm a woman. It didn't matter that you were a completely different sex, okay. but I just got your cap and okay. I am now in. Okay, so it'd be like okay, it'd be like if my computer only recognized people with glasses. I took mine off and you're wearing them. You're now in charge. Doesn't care about anything yeah, else. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, okay. so, or, you know, whoever is your favorite baseball team, I have San Francisco Giants cap. And if I just, you wore the Giants cap, you're in. If you Got don't it. have the cap, you're out. Got it. So the viruses, especially influenza viruses, they hijack our um, caps when they start multiplying and they have an infection. And by taking our cap, they basically fool our immune system into believing that, uh, oh, I'm you. Don't don't kill me. Don't degrade me. Um, and so they can do that. But of course, there is this um, fight, right? That's not the only thing that our immune system is looking for. So cap is one way to evade our innate immune system. Uh, the other thing that happens is that when these non-self RNA or DNA from pathogens, their genetic material comes in, is that 
um, you see a surge in certain cytokines. So for example, interferon uh, is one that always gets a bad name. But the interferon uh, cytokine actually is also identifying these uh, uh, foreign mRNAs. And if uh, they find them, then they give a signal that this is foreign. Get rid of it. Don't let it make protein. Don't let it use your resources. Um, so uh, given that this they're making this whole construct and giving it, and given that the RNA are really very labile or delicate molecules that are um, that that can uh, lose their integrity. So if you lose the cap, it'll not be translated. If you lose the polyatail, it'll not be translated, meaning it won't be made into a protein. If some of these sequences go away, or you know if this gets into half, then you can get a truncated protein or a half protein, and so you have many issues, as you can see, and many challenges. So um, some of it is just my handwritten scribble, sorry, when I was trying to understand it myself, and and I actually have, um, in 2003, actually UCSF filed a patent on uh, delivery technology for mRNA as well as other small biologics really? in for me. So I have some um, other notes as well, but in, so just Going there, the five prime cap uh, and the polyatail, the mRNA gets translated into protein. And this protein is the one that's um, against which antibodies will be made, mm -hmm. right? So there's a spike protein in here. Now, how this is being delivered is, is just in uh, a nutshell here. So you take this uh, mRNA, which is capped and has polyatail, and uh, both um, Pfizer and Moderna are then mixing them with what are called pegylated lipids. And the process of mixing it, the lipids then become uh, nanoparticles, or it's called the LNP lipid nanoparticle, which I think perhaps may be the source of confusion about people thinking about chips. So I don't think that is the right uh, way to think about it, but uh, it's, it's just a lipid nanoparticle. Nano means it's just a small size. And, but one thing to keep in mind is that there's no way we can control the size of the nanoparticle. So by default, you'll have different sizes. Yeah. And different sizes will have different amounts uh, that they will capture inside. So what we call a payload. So the payload is going to be different in these. And so now let's say you took um, 100 micrograms of RNA and you mix it with some concentration of lipid and now you have 100 micrograms in these lipid nanoparticles. But when you dilute it, there's no way for you to know if you're actually, you know, there's no way to size, size sort it. So oh. when you dilute it, your one dilution can have more of the big ones, in some cases more of the small ones, in some cases a mixture. There's no way they can guarantee that you're only getting 30 micrograms or you're only getting 100 micrograms. Oh. So this is another reason why some people may react uh, sure. more to it or less to it. And some people may have more antibodies or some people may have no antibodies. So let's just say if uh, this got degraded, the mRNA, 
um, then you may just it may just evoke an innate immune response and you may not get any protein. So you may still see some cytokines that come up and people measure just cytokines and antibodies and call it an immune response, but that may not provide any protection. Or um, excuse me. And then of course when this RNA is given in you, uh, in then the cells that take this up. Different cells have different uh, efficacy of translating, right? They have different resources. So not all cells are equal. So the amount of protein being made, first of all, the amount of, we have one problem here, right? The delivery, the dilution, and then the uptake. Once it's taken up by the cells, how much of that will get um get made into protein depends on the type of cells, depends on what other things are in your cells, you know, because it's not, uh, it's not the virus that has all the ways and uh, all the um, intricacies of diverting your resources. It's only an mRNA. So it doesn't have the kind of trickery that the virus uses to divert your resources. So uh, we don't know how much of that is getting translated and how much of protein, and if that's consistent between different individuals, or even between different doses or between different cell types. So there's a lot of unknown there. And um, finally, there were, um, even in the October meeting to the FDA, and I, I found this slide very, very compelling that, you know, there were, uh, in that committee meeting, there were people who were concerned that uh, they said that before there is license given that if we were to uh, deploy a weak uh, effective COVID vaccine, then that could do more harm than good. Here, it's their slide, uh -huh. not my slide. Uh -huh. um, and, and for several reasons, it'll provide a false sense of security, right? That will interfere with uh, measures to reduce SARS-CoV tr transmission. And this is very evident given that the vaccines don't provide you protection for more than a certain amount of time. You can see the COVID-19 vaccines, and I'm not talking about other vaccines. There are other vaccines for other um, diseases that are effective, that are good. And uh, my worry is that this whole washed up um, deployment of these vaccines is now going to create more mistrust and, uh -huh. and do harm to both science and the other really good vaccines. Yeah. So um, definitely it's given a false sense of security to a lot of people who seem to think that once they're vaccinated, they are like completely protected, which is not true. We've seen breakthrough infections. We've seen people who get breakthrough infections. They can get hospitalized. They can die. Um, Colin Powell, General Colin Powell is, a, is, a, is an unfortunate example. And then um, the other issue that they point out is that because we will get sort of complacent, it will interfere with development and evaluation of potentially better vaccines that could have a greater impact. Yeah, yeah. Why, yeah, why improve if we already have an answer? Right. And so it seems like we concluded that the mRNA vaccines are 100% safe, 100% efficacious, and and that's neither of those two are true. And, um, and of course, it will also allow for 
even less effective vaccines to be deployed based on meeting very inferiority criteria. And that's what we've seen, that the, the, the expectation is so low that people are just happy and that, oh, we will not get very uh, severe symptoms. But frankly, we don't know that whether or not you would get very severe symptoms because we don't have that enough data from unvaccinated to say that uh, what's the comparison, right? So if you had to say, for example, is this um, Delta variant or the now the new Omicron variant, is it more lethal or more deadly? Forget about the more transmissible part, right? The virus, like I said in um, Marcus Aubrey's podcast, that the virus is also trying to survive. It ha- it wants to live. It doesn't want to really kill. Yeah. And now that the virus, for whatever reason, has made the jump from bats to humans, we there are many more humans than there are bats. So why not stay in a host that is much more than you know its original host? So, but it it doesn't want to kill its host. So it's trying to come to an equilibrium. And um, so if it's more transmissible, all it's doing is that it's trying to get into more uh, more of its host. Um, and uh, so we won't know whether it's more virulent or pathogenic unless we compare people who are unvaccinated or people who got uh, COVID in the earlier waves and they remain unvaccinated. The question is, is any one of them in fact gets reinfected with uh, this new Omicron variant? And you can't do uh, talk about the reinfection unless you actually sequence that. And now you're finding that there may be several variants of the Omicron. Uh, um, it's like a clade, and um, they they differ. And and they're um, um, and I, I I think I saw one actually a report in a one of the mainstream newspapers saying that um, perhaps it's a combination of uh, uh, coronavirus, flu virus, and maybe even HIV. So where is it picking up all these things from? It can't pick up from a, a healthy individual who doesn't have an HIV infection or who doesn't have a flu infection. So where is it picking up all of those things? And, and that that this particular um, Omicron looks or resembles more the earlier variant. So perhaps this has been around for a much longer time and just because it was detected uh, just a few days ago in South Africa doesn't mean that that's when it, originated. It could have originated three months ago. It could have originated in March because that's what they're saying, that phylogenetically it resembles uh, the variants that were around in March of 2020. So uh, our PCR methods are uh, not very um, uh, robust in detecting different variants. And since they don't sequence, um, they don't confirm positive results by sequencing. Uh, my own experience is that PCR can give false uh, positives uh, given that we use such um, a large number of cycles. In the lab, we rarely go over 30 cycles. And even at 30 cycles, you know, uh, most of the time, if it's a first time, we have to sequence and confirm, which doesn't doesn't seem to be happening here. So... Um, it's kind of like, sorry, it's kind of like if you're a, if you're a, like watch like a news video on YouTube and it's some breaking thing. President Trump did this. Uh, Iraq is about to do this. You're like, oh, my God. And, you know, it's China about to invade India. And then like you look at the upload date and it was like four years ago. 
And you're like, oh, well, wait, hold on. So that's not really applicable. So you're saying, like, sure, Omicron is here now in the news, but, like, it might have been floating around. Yeah, if phylogenetically, you can, that's a more accurate chronological indicator, right? Right. Okay. But again, that's happening, you know, give, give the scientists a chance to figure it out before start spreading this information, whether it's more virulent or more pathogenic, visit more, you know, already fear and panic by um, shutting down travel or um, like South African authorities said that uh, travel is now banned from South Africa. I mean, what's the point? It's like the... The horse is already out of the stable. <laughs> now you're shutting the gate. How does it matter? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. So um, I think what I want to do is probably stop here. But uh, it's been, what, what do you, what do you say? It's whatever you want. It's whatever you'd like to do. I mean, I don't want it to get so long that people just sort of lose interest, but very, um, maybe very quickly, just also looking at, I mean, I've looked at their, the bio distribution studies that were done by um, Pfizer and Moderna and then submitted uh, to the FDA, the European medical agencies, as well as the Japanese. I've looked at all three documents and um, similar data is shown in there in some uh, documents a little bit more than others. But uh, to me, first of all, you can look at that it was done only in four male rats. And then the biodistribution is not done using the actual mRNA uh, encapsulated in the or in the lipid nanoparticle, but they just give the lipid nanoparticle and then assume that's where the mRNA will go. It's okay assumption, but you have to uh, do it and show that the mRNA is actually retaining its integrity when you do it in vivo. Okay. In vivo meaning in animals, not in cell lines. So cell lines is called in vitro and in vivo is in animals. Okay. So that experiment has never been done in uh, animals and we just did it in humans. Um, similarly, they didn't, uh, and, and, and they didn't really perform too many uh, pharmacokinetics or PK studies, but which they, if they did, it's like three animals. And again, it's to me, it's just preposterous. I would not be able to publish a paper with three uh, animals in my study. Yeah. How can you do stats on three? I don't know. Yeah, I did uh, an undergrad. I did uh, I co-authored uh, some research in aquatic toxicology. It was uh, the effects of salinity on nickel toxicity to the two-year hailing fish species Cryptolebius marmoratus and Fungulus heteroclitus. And I think it's on PubMed, but I remember it because it was like three semesters of we must have gone through thousand of these little fish because we'd run a study and my professor, Dr. Bielmeyer would be like, good, now we got to do it again. I'm like, why do we have to do it yeah. again? We just did it. And she was like, that's only a hundred fish. And I'd be like, that's a lot. And she's like, no, you need, you need to cover everything. Cause you don't know what was a freak, you know, a freak occurrence here, a freak occurrence there. And when you get it out and you average it out. So I know from a, a place of many a headache of sitting in the lab and pipetting, but yeah, you have to have that full spread and that's when you can get the accurate representation of whatever it is you're postulating or hypothesizing. 
and Moderna is from five animals. So, um, you know, a little bit better than four or three, but not that much. Uh, so all I'm saying is that, okay, you can say the preclinical studies are not important, but they they have always been very important. They have they've been a rigor, and that provides you with some um, sort of confidence. They didn't do any toxic uh, studies. They didn't do any uh, biodegradation studies. We don't know. Like I said, in here, they only gave the lipid nanoparticle. They never gave the the and then uh, never the mRNA. They did a bioluminescence study to show. Uh, whether where the mRNA can go, but not it wasn't really mRNA. It was a DNA construct that they gave. So uh, the actual uh, LNP was never given, and this is what they said in their uh, clinical trial that this was this was what was going to be followed. That they will have the vaccination period, and then there was a follow up of two years, which never happened. Within two months, they collapsed their placebo, placebo arm and make, got them vaccinated as well. So there is just no follow-up, nothing um, in most people. And so it's uh, it's a little, uh, little, a lot disturbing that we have allowed panic and fear to um, create so much of chaos and confusion and allowed for such sloppy uh, trials to happen. And uh, FDA has published themselves that there were um, uh, 22 cases they published of um, where the phase two and three trials had very divergent results. We never did have a phase three trial for this vaccine. So uh, can they have very divergent results? Of course they can. The phase two trials were only done for seven days. They made all their data was based off of seven to very little days. And here's an example of HSV vaccine that was had really huge efficacy in their um, phase one, but no um, or or positive biomarker results, which are just looking at antibodies and things like that. But it didn't really prevent uh, herpes. So there are uh, many cases of, of such uh, failed uh, progression of uh, phase one, two studies to phase three or getting different results. And we saw that with Moderna's influenza vaccine. Um, and of course, there is this thing of that uh, a lot more money was poured into uh, making the COVID mRNA vaccine. But like you very aptly used the analogy, that for uh, making a baby, if it takes nine months, you can't uh, yeah. have nine women make it in one month. Yeah. So uh, there, there are immune responses that take time. There are certain quality testing. There are all of those things that you cannot. It doesn't matter how much money you put in. Uh, the, the time and, and, of course, the long-term effects are long-term. You can't know them in a shorter period of time. And interestingly, this came out recently that research findings that are probably wrong are cited far more than robust uh, studies. So it's uh, science is not um, uh, without its caveats and without its um, um, problems. So I'll leave you with the thought that uh, is COVID-19 really the worst killer? And are we looking at the health status and other comorbidities or that may be contributing or there are other diseases that are causing more deaths right now as we speak 
Um, heart disease still remains uh, one of the biggest killers and so does cancer. So where are we with that? Yeah. And so thank you. And I hope it wasn't too long. No, it was wonderful. That was absolutely wonderful. Yeah, you could say that <clears throat> you could almost... You stop sharing? Oh, yeah. Are you sharing or am I sharing? No, yeah, 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 you can stop. Yeah, no, thank you. That was wonderful. Um, you could almost say that. Yeah, is it the worst killer? What are we looking at? You could, it's you could say that's almost represented by that timeline of the PubMed uh, publications. It's if we if we focus on something, you know, the forty six thousand publications. Are we just looking at? You know, it's like sometimes you'll have like a pimple and it's very noticeable, but sometimes you'll start to look at the mirror and you notice every little thing, and it's like, well, yeah, the closer you look, you're gonna find more pimples. Versus like, are you maybe not looking at something else? Like, I don't. Do you have a cut on your arm, or you know, do you have a weird hair growing out of your neck, or something? You're not looking at other stuff. So when we zoom in, and I could probably, I think I'm relatively healthy. I could probably go to the doctor right now. And if they really wanted to, and I paid a million dollars and had them examine my throat, and they looked really closely and sequenced all my genes, given enough time, you're probably going to find something that goes, oh, that's not good. But versus you, you do a checkup, look at my ears, eyes, notes, you know, you check out your, your genitals, take your heart rate, do everything, do a little blood work. Yeah, you're pretty fine. You're 31, you're healthy, you're good. If we zoom, 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 zoom in on one little thing, yeah, we're going to find problems with that because that's all we're looking at. And there might be other things arising all around us. Maybe I'm going to the doctor and having them just examine my throat. All the while, I'm not paying attention to the fact that, who knows, maybe my marriage is failing. Maybe my car needs oil. Like, there are these things around it. So, sure, COVID's capturing the minds and it's well as it should. I mean, what, four or five million people have died. But at a certain point, you do have to look back, zoom out and go, we're a population of seven something billion people. What else is going on? And are we, you know, are we losing the forest for the trees or the trees for the forest, however the saying goes? So no, I, I agree with you. It's, are we just as a society, are we getting neurotic about this? Yeah. So that's kind of my final thoughts on that. Okay. Well, I mean, like I've said before, initially when this was identified, okay, you, you know, still, I mean, I don't think there is, uh, there have been pandemics in the past and there was no panic. Uh, why was the SARS and the MERS and even the Ebola, they were all contained uh, so quickly and why did this happen? So we can blame it on many things, but okay, the blame game doesn't help anyone. It's out here now. But uh, to be uh, in, in state of emergency two years into this is sort of ridiculous that they're still giving emergency use authorization for the vaccine in the kids doesn't make sense. Um, given that, again, I'm, uh, I'm definitely against the mandates and I don't think any medication should be forced on anybody, uh, mostly because we all have different uh, health conditions. We don't know um, what side effects it may have. What, and of course, the other issues that FDA and other agencies, they take forever to, to uh, document. I mean, you know about thalamide, right? So that was a drug that Lutamide, was... Yeah. 
morning sickness and it caused uh, deformities in 100% of the fetuses. And yet it took them for, uh, you know, quite a bit of time to recall that. So if something like that, you know, it takes, why? I mean, if we are hearing about side effects, if we know that there are certain caveats, there are the efficacy is so low, uh, the FDA hearing in 2020, they themselves stated that that's a problem. Is it not time to hit the pause button for the mandates? Is it not time to examine that perhaps we need other solutions and not just vaccine? The vaccines are not the panacea that they were talking about. Uh, without that, I just don't think we can. Um, uh, and and to to not have this kind of panic and so what if you get mild symptoms so what if you get the disease and if your natural immunity is protecting you and better protecting you and providing you cross protection because there are there is definitely evidence that um, if you've had um, flu in the past then you are better protected you may have very mild disease. Um, so, so it's a it's a really complicated and nuanced uh, scenario, and we can't just put everybody in the same bin and expect that um, everybody's going to react the same way. And like I've said before, vaccines are not equalizer. It's not like if you get the vaccine and I get the vaccine that our immune system now starts the same, uh, you know, playing field. No, the vaccines rely on your immune system and uh, my immune system and. I probably was exposed to uh, far more uh, antigens and pathogens uh, growing up in India than perhaps you were. Uh, and for example, it's known that uh, pig farmers never get um, a disease called inflammatory bowel disease, uh, whereas other people do. So there is definitely, uh, there are certain subset of people who never get multiple sclerosis. Um, so that's more than just the, the genotype. Uh, there are people who live in uh, Africa, they will not develop uh, MS. And, but if they, um, same, if they came to the US, perhaps their chances are just the same. So it's so much more complicated and we can't just throw everybody in the same bin and say, you need to take this, that everybody needs and that's how it's, uh, and, and definitely, given that it's not stopping transmission, uh, there are plenty of breakthrough infections. You can't blame the vaccinated. The infections will come. They'll come from, uh, given that not 100% of the animals that were exposed to the bolus of the virus developed the disease, tells you that it's uh, there is more to it than just um, exposure. Yeah, and it's... <clears throat> And perhaps this will be our our leaving point, and we'll lead lead into it tomorrow. But kind of closing thoughts are sort of the conclusion of everything we're saying, or you're saying, or I'm saying, or whatever. Everything we're discussing is that it's all still out there. You know, it's a book, and we're not finished yet. We have our predictions. We're extrapolating from the past, or but the reality is, is we just don't know that nine months that pregnancy. It takes time. And so what do you need to do in that time? The only thing you can do, allow the free flow of information to discuss it, to analyze it, to peer review, to shoot each other down, to build each other up and get to the truth, like the heliocentric theory or germ theory or anything else to get down to it. What we can't do 
is say that this is settled and then silence everyone else, especially when this isn't just science. There's also human flaw, human greed. There is corruption. There are bribes. There are trillions of dollars at stake. You can never, you can never look at a war and just look at it as a war when there are defense contractors. You can never, you know, look at, you know, you can't say that ExxonMobil is or is not interested in, in climate change arguments. You cannot say that X, Y, and Z, right? So that's another huge thing is allow the free flow of information and how much money is involved. And when we have these trusted agencies or the FDA or the CDC, we do have to do our sort of own peer review with them. We have to go, well, who are they in association with? Do that? Are they getting kickbacks from anyone? And I'm not saying they are or they aren't. But when you're looking at it and you're going, something doesn't make sense. You know, why does this ketchup smell like mustard? The label says ketchup, but I'm looking at it. Well, then you have to start. Well, what else is going on? Well, every time you turn on the news and they talk about the vaccines, what do they pull up on the side? They pull up the stock prices of those four corporations. And it's like, guys, what's going on here? What are we really doing? And so now if none of this was going on, I would say, yeah, we're trying to figure it out. But when you're censoring people, not just myself, because I'm just a dude with a camera, but when you're censoring Dr. Robert Malone or Dr. Peter McCullough or yourself or any of the other physicians I've interviewed, or you're not a physician, any of the other doctors I've interviewed, Mobin Saeed, George Farid, Ken Albeck, Stephen Hatfield, Merrill Nass, Uphuse, Youngblood, all these people it gets a little weird when they're all getting censored. Again, I get censored. All right, it's a guy. He's spreading misinformation about a pandemic. But when these wildly esteemed physicians with impeccable resumes are getting censored and it doesn't make sense, it's it's not just that the ketchup tastes like mustard. Everyone that says, hey, I think that's mustard, someone punches them in the face. At a certain point, you're like, I don't know what's going on, but it's certainly not passing the sniff test. And with that, because we said we're going to keep this one as even keeled as we can, we will leave on that note and we will be back tomorrow with Dr. Robert Malone, Dr. Bargava, and Tommy. And I don't know where that discussion is going to go. That one's going to be a roller coaster. I have no idea. I'm excited though. And, um, but thank you for that. I learned a lot. I real I didn't know any of that, but I would say the the things that really get me are the the low animal or the not do, the phase two phase three divergence, the four animals the five animals, and that change in and uh, sorry the FDA's slide and number four that two thousand two to two thousand thirteen this came from a bat this might not need an intermediate host. What what's going on here? Why are we flip flopping? So. But I think that with those points, that should be interested, interesting to anyone, anyone that wants the vaccine or does not want the vaccine, that wants there to be mandates or does not want there to be mandates, that wants to censor people or does not want to censor people. Those are four interesting points that we all need to take in and like peer review, reevaluate and then move forward. And Dr. Bargava, final thoughts, anything? No, well, that's enough. <laughs> okay. okay. It's, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I will see you tomorrow. And, um,
I'm glad we figured it out today and we got the recording. I'm happy that that worked. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your uh, thank you for your PowerPoint presentation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm glad you did. Thank you. Yep. I'll email to you when it's uploaded. Probably be uploaded a little later tonight. I did two other podcasts before this. I got to edit them. I don't know okay. why I did three. I'm I, I, apparently. I'm you want to stop recording? Yeah, I'll, I'll stop recording. Um, and I will see you tomorrow. Okay. Okay. Stop recording. Oh, okay. Okay. Hold on. Stop recording. And the recording 